0: chapter 1 verse 19 this is the testimony of john when the jews sent priests and levites from jerusalem to ask him who are you now he confessed he did not deny but confessed i am not the christ and they asked him well what then are you elijah he said i am not Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, They had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered and said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Lord, oh, we pray that you would give us the help we need to think through what it is that you would have for us here, Lord. I mean, your, your word is so rich and full, and even as we're reading about this John the Baptist, Lord, you can still, even here today, 2,000 years removed, give us not only insight, but it can change our life for the better, for your glory. And so, God, we pray and we ask right now that you would fill us with your Spirit, that we might hear from you the truths that you want us to hear, and that we might love you more and know you better at the end of this message than we did when we began to hear, Lord. All for your glory and you great, your great namesake. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we conclude the introductory part of the Gospel of John, and we now begin... What we might consider the storyline of John. Interestingly enough, and we're not going to make much of this, but we have here seven days in a row given to us of events. Now, these events probably took place over a longer period of time, but I think because we saw the beginning of John's gospel, beginning with in the beginning, he is also paralleling how he's introducing us to Jesus with a parallel to the days of creation. He's giving us seven days of seven events that took place in the life, or at least the beginnings of Jesus' ministry. These first two actually pertain to John the Baptist. Here, the first one we're looking at today says, the Jews sent priests and Levites. Verse 29, you notice it says, the next day. Verse 35, the next day. Verse 43, the next day. And on and on it goes so, so like that. But for our sake and our study right now, we really want to hone in on this particular fellow, John the Baptist. He's a character, no denying that. We look up and read stories about him. In fact, look back at Luke with me, if you will. Luke chapter 3 And Luke gives us the most insight into this guy, John the Baptist, that we have. We have all these pronouncements about his birth here in the Gospel of Luke. We see uh, the story with Elizabeth burying John the Baptist and him leaping in the womb when Mary arrives, who is her cousin, and begins talking to him. But we also have here in the beginning of chapter 3, before the genealogy of Christ, we have this discussion of John the Baptist and the kind of character he was. It says in verse 7, He said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Not exactly a seeker-sensitive message. (laughs) He's not playing to the crowd's felt needs here at this particular point. That's for sure. Look, John didn't mess about when it came to his ministry and his mission. He was very, very singularly focused on it. And so he could say things like this. And because he didn't care what people thought or what people said, it was heard by the people and they continued to come out to him. So he goes on, "...bear fruits in keeping with repentance." you want to flee the wrath to come? Repent and keep on repenting and act like it. Don't begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees and every tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. <laughs> the crowd said, what? well, what are we going to do? They understand what John is saying. They understand John is telling them they have no hope apart from just simply repenting and then resting upon God and his mercy. He says in verse 11, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Well, tax collectors came out to be baptized to him and said, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also came to him and said, What shall we do? He said to them, Don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, but be content with your wages. Now, as the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, Is this guy the Christ? Now, There is a massive expectation that is alluded to here in the Gospel of Luke. For the majority of the history of the nation of Israel, God revealed himself to different points of the people, different people in different points of time, very punctuated. But yet it was consistent enough that people expected God to continue to speak and continue to act. Now we read the Bible from Genesis to Malachi and it looks like God was just doing stuff all the time, every day you couldn't go through a week without him doing some magnificent crazy miracle in Israel. But that's not the case. There was hundreds of years of gaps in between some of the things God is doing in the pages of the Old Testament. But It was enough that people had this constant anticipation and expectation of him preparing them for the Messiah to come. They had this messianic expectation from so many passages in the Old Testament, right? I mean, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is the very first example of the gospel being given. And there in Genesis 3.15, it says that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent and finally bring salvation that they desperately wanted thereafter the fall. And then on and on and on from there, we have this one little prophecy being explored or expanded upon or it's like a flower that begins to bloom throughout the pages of the Old Testament so much so that when you come to the end of the book of Malachi and there's 400 silent years 400 400 400 that's the 1600s that's the 1500s the late 1500s that's a long time ago Imagine that you are a people who God has spoken, God sent prophets, God ministered, God has exiled, God has brought you back in the land, God has promised, God, 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 and all of a sudden nothing for 400 years. You'd be a little expectant of something to begin to happen. A little wondering, was all that stuff right? Was all that stuff true? They kept going through the motions, they kept going through their reading of the Bible and trying to understand it, and then, all of a sudden, crazy John the Baptist shows up out there in the wilderness screaming at people to repent, telling people how to live their lives and whatnot, saying, do this, don't do this, and correcting their own sinful tendencies, Right? What he's doing is he's not calling them to a legalistic standard, meaning if you do these things, it equals your salvation. He's saying repent and then bear fruits in keeping with that repentance, meaning you're a penitent individual. So when you sin and you repent, you need to stop doing those things that you were previously doing that were sinful. You need the Holy Spirit to do that, but that comes later on in the gospel, so I'll leave that for later on as well. But this expectation that everyone had around the Messiah, when John came about, everyone focused their attention on him because of the wild manner in which he lived and the things he was saying. But notice what he says, back to John chapter 1 very first thing, because John is out here saying and doing these things, the priests and the Levites who are from Jerusalem ask him, who are you? Now, if you don't understand the makeup of Israel in biblical times, you don't have a sort of bifurcated society like we have in the United States. Here in America, we have what has been popularized as a separation of church and state, although that doesn't exist anywhere in the Constitution or Declaration of Independence or any of those kind of things, Bill of Rights or or the Federalist Papers. It was a letter from, um, oh, now it escapes me, Andrew something or another. Whatever, that dude, (laughs) some old dead guy. Ah. In his letter, he wanted there to be this. So in our nation, we really don't, for the most part, have people who are president or people who are in Congress or people who represent us also being ministers. And we don't have ministers, by and large, who also are politically minded or political individuals. Now, there's some spillover, don't get me wrong. But by and large, that's not the way we function. And we're kind of grateful for that in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways we might wish there was more crossover. But needless to say, that's the way Israel function or pardon me, that's the way we function. Israel, on the other hand, it was completely intermingled. Anybody who was a religious leader was therefore by default also a political leader. And so you have the Sadducees who were the religious liberals of the day. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. But they were still religious folk who were also politically minded. And then you have these Pharisees. And they started out really well, to be perfectly honest. They began in that Maccabean period in between the Testaments during that revolution. And they were the -the back-to-the-Bible guys. They really were. They wanted to go back and say, well, we have strayed so far. God brought the Greeks in. And that's why we have all this mess here in our land now. Because we have strayed from following God in his ways. And that's a noble idea to have. And so these Pharisees were these guys who looked back to scriptures. And over time, though, you know what happens. Tradition sets in. And they began to build upon building upon building upon building the laws and regulations that you know we look at and laugh at oftentimes when we go back and look at these weird ideals of not starting fire on the Sabbath day, so therefore you can 't push a button on an elevator to go up if you 're to go to Israel today because that might that 's causing a spark to and all just on and on and on that kind of stuff went they didn 't have elevators, but they had laws that were really silly and similar to that one of the things that arose about their tradition though was they believed that if they could get to a point where they followed the law perfectly the messiah would return so they were very expectant of the messiah's return that's one of the reasons they were so fastidious in the things that they were doing it wasn't just raw legalism They were Adventists of sorts, meaning not like we understand Seventh-day Adventists, but they were expecting the advent of the Messiah because of the works they were doing. They were going to usher in this reign of the Messiah. So we, you know, there's a lot of people who are having an expectation of the second coming of Christ in a secret rapture or something along those lines, who have a similar fervor for certain things that are biblical, now, we're going to see throughout the book of John that the Pharisees had strayed very far from their biblical roots to the point where they had misinterpreted, mis- and just completely misunderstood the whole point of what it was that God was doing in the Old Testament. Namely, revealing why they needed a Christ and what pointed them to Christ. So here, though, they come to G- John and they say, okay... Who are you? The Jews, meaning the religious political leaders of the day, sent these guys and asked John the Baptist, Who are you? Now, it's a good question to ask, right? If, you know, we are Bible-believing, born-again Christians, and if somebody were to arise and start proclaiming certain biblical things and biblical truths, we probably would want to ask that same question, right? The question in and of itself isn't in error or wrong, but what might be is the intention behind that question. Their intention is to accuse, to criticize, to try to discern, you know, how can we get in there and either manipulate this guy for our ends or what do we use to exclude him because he's drawing people away from us Going out there into the wilderness and their messianic expectation is rising. So they wanted to deal with this decisively and if they could, quickly. So they ask him, who are you? But John, he's clever, he understands. He confesses, he didn't deny, but confess, I am not the Christ. Three things he says. He's not the Christ are you Elijah? I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? I'm not the prophet. So they asked him, verse 22, "Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself?" Now, first of all, they're trying to get at his spiritual pedigree, right? They're, they're not try- they're not literally asking him, "Who are you?" In that they didn't know Zachariah and Elizabeth was, were his parents, right? That was evident. Clearly, everybody saw the miracle that took place around Zechariah and the announcement of John the Baptist. So there was probably already some kind of legend about him anyways that was going on around the nation of Israel. So they weren't asking that. They were asking, what gives you the right to spiritually be saying these things that you are? Repent, for the wrath of God is coming upon you? That's a hard message. So what gives John the authority to do that? Well, he says he's not three things. First of all, he's not the Christ. He is not the Christ. Look at John chapter 3 with me real quick. Just flip a page over to your right probably. In most Bibles it's probably that short. John chapter 3. Look in verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples pardon me, and a Jew over purification. Well, so they came to John and they said, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered and said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. you yourselves bear witness that I said, See, John understands he's not the Christ. And in fact, he seems perfectly willing and ready at this point in order to give up all of his disciples, all of his ministry, all of his influence for Christ's sake, for Jesus's sake here at this particular point. Now, who is the Christ though, right? They're coming and they're asking, are you the Christ? So what exactly are they asking? Well... We know from several Old Testament passages what they are getting at. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you know me, you know this is one of my favorite Old Testament passages, 2 Samuel chapter 7, David wanted to build a temple for God and God came to him through the prophet Nathan and said, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. You are a man of blood and a man of warfare. Therefore, you can't be the one to build my temple. But God has this message for David, beginning at the end of verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So rather than David building a house for God, God's going to build a house for David. When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In Hosea, at least I think it's Hosea, I just dropped my notes. Hosea 3 Hosea 3, that's one of the minor prophets, he says this in verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear no more to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And this same refrain about David the king being the one people are looking to comes up all throughout the prophets, both major and minor. And the Jews knew, of course, David wasn't going to be resurrected from the dead. They were looking back at that promise we looked at in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God made a covenant with David that David's line would be established and that the king of kings would come through the line of David. And so they were looking and they asked John the Baptist in saying, are you the Christ or who are you? And he's saying, I'm not the Christ. He is saying, I am not the king in the lineage of David. Okay, that's the first one. Well, how about the second one? Are you not Elijah? Now, he says he is not Elijah. Why would they ask about Elijah? Well, look here at the very last page of the Old Testament. Malachi. I don't hear many pages turning. Malachi chapter 4. He says this at the very end. Behold, verse 5. I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord that comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So here, right at the very end of the Old Testament, God says he's going to send Elijah. And so one of the great expectations that the Jews did have surrounding the Messiah is that Elijah was the one who was going to come first and turn the hearts of the nation back to God and that they're going to receive what God brings in the, God sends, pardon me, in the person of the Messiah. Now, this messianic expectation came because in 2 Kings chapter 11, if you remember, Elijah didn't die. There's only a couple of people who didn't die in the whole of Scripture. And Elijah's one of them. And he was, as it were, caught up there in what's called a fiery chariot. I don't have any idea what that means. So don't ask me, what do you think that was, Pat? Is a fiery chariot <laughs> i have no idea exactly what it was but he was caught up into heaven and there he was taken and he was still alive and breathing air apparently as he was caught up into heaven well because he didn't die and because here at the end of the old testament elijah was supposed to return they were expecting literally elijah to come back down from heaven breathing air like a dude who'd been away a long time or whatever and he was going to set the hearts of the people back for the messiah and so they ask him well hey are you elijah then because that's who they were expecting and he says no no i am not elijah that's interesting in matthew chapter 17 matthew 17 just after the transfiguration of Christ, what happens is Jesus pulls his disciples aside who were there, right? Peter, James, and John. And he says, don't tell anybody what you've just seen yet. It's four after the time of Christ's resurrection. Because what they saw was Christ in his incarnate glory pre-incarnate glory and so they were supposed to save that until he had been resurrected so verse 10 says and the disciples ask him why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come he answered in verse 11 Elijah does come and he will restore all things but I tell you Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So, why does John say he's not Elijah if Jesus says, well, he actually was? But that's not quite what it says. It says that Elijah has come, but uh, John the Baptist didn't restore all things. This is one of those things that I think has a near and far fulfillment. Jesus not only does this, the prophets in the Old Testament do this, where they say one thing specifically here about one issue, and it has a fulfillment in this point in time, and it also has a greater fulfillment far, far, far in the future. Okay? Lots of times... The prophets do this. With Jesus, for example, there are lots of places that when we look at what Jesus is doing, that he says this is the fulfillment. So when he is there in the synagogue in his hometown, and he opens up the scroll to Isaiah, and he reads from it, he reads a section about, you know, opening the prison doors and saying the captives is free and da da all this wonderful good stuff, and then he stops in mid-sentence closes up the scroll and puts it away because the rest of that sentence talks about the wrathful judgment day of God that's coming and he was not there in his first incarnation to bring the wrath of God upon a sinful world system but he is in his second coming you see so one sentence from the book of Isaiah has both a near fulfillment in Christ and a far fulfillment in Christ as well And so something similar Jesus is getting at with Elijah, with John the Baptist. There are going to be, at least we see in the book of Revelation, two prophets who come, and they're apparently in the power spirit of Elijah and Moses. I don't think they're actually Moses, and I don't think it's actually Elijah, but it's probably something similar to John the Baptist that will happen at the very end before Christ's second coming. I don't know any more than that. It's a... Crazy, crazy convoluted mess there in the book of Revelation. But we do see this near and far fulfillment. So John the Baptist fulfilled a part of what Elijah's future coming ministry was going to be. Turning the hearts of people back to God. But there's also something that comes along later on that that spirit or that person who has that spirit of Elijah will also emulate. So his denial... Was one not out of necessarily um, substance, but of style? He's denying that he is stylistically this same guy. John the Baptist never performed any miracles. We're not even recorded anyway. We have him doing all kinds of things, dressing you know oddly and acting oddly, but he never performs any miracles. Elijah performed all kinds of miracles. The Elijah type character there in the book of Revelation apparently performs miracles. And so here we see again this near and far fulfillment in that particular category. But here he's declaring he's not this same Elijah. And I think the point that he's trying to make is that he's not wanting everybody to think that he's coming in the way that everybody thinks. So this not the near far thing is collapsed into one event. I think that's what he's getting at, is they're not one event, they're two actual events. Now you might say, boy, that's a lot to read into there, Pat. Yeah? Yeah, it is. But when we take the scripture as a whole, which is the way we want to read and study and preach the scripture, we want to see what the all of the all, we want to see what all of scripture says About a particular issue, and this is what we see here about this guy Elijah. Well, how about the prophet? Are you the prophet? You might ask the question Who's the prophet? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Deuteronomy 18, God speaking. Through Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired the day of, pardon me, just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire any more lest I die. The Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods That same prophet shall die. So this prophet never was raised up in that nation of Israel. So in this messianic expectation that the nation of Israel had, they were still looking for this particular prophet. We see Christ fulfilling this role in his offices of prophet, priest, and king. That his words, God's words were put into his mouth. We'll find that when we get to John chapter 5. And Jesus says, I never say anything except what my father tells me to say. I never do anything except what my father tells me to do. And the point of that is that there's union both in that hypostatic union within the two natures of Christ and there's union within the members of the Godhead. There isn't any division at all. And so this prophet is one who has been given the words from direct, immediate revelation of God, not via a medium. It's directly come to Christ because he is the second person of the Trinity. So, okay, he's not Christ, he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet. Who are you? We've got to go back and tell our bosses who you're saying you are. Well, he said to them, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. Now, just a side note here. This passage, I I looked and did reading, and this passage was not a major point of reference that anybody was looking to in terms of the Messiah's coming. There, there really wasn't anything. There was this idea that this person might have been somebody who was telling Israel to stop following their idols, which was really common in Isaiah's day. But there was no messianic expectation surrounding this text. So it was a surprise. John surprises these guys and kind of get, gets them off guard by bringing up Isaiah chapter 40. Now we looked at it here when we did our call to worship. Thank you, Joel, for reading all that. Um, But let me read you just the first three verses here it says comfort comfort my people says your god why well the first 39 chapters of isaiah are all judgment harsh judgment judgments coming upon the nation because of their idolatry and their rebellion and they're about to be sent off into exile And so, here, all of a sudden, if you're just reading straight through the book of Isaiah, and remember, there weren't chapter and verse breaks, but you're reading and you're just getting this hard and heavy judgment, and then all of a sudden you stop at these words comfort, comfort my people, it's going to jar you. It's going to get your attention. And that's the point. God now begins this section here at the end of the book of Isaiah with these words, comfort, comfort. And he's going to go right into this prophecy of John and then talk about his covenant that he has, not just with Israel, but all of his people. And this is the key, I believe, to understanding this ministry of John the Baptist. He is the covenantal herald of God's salvation. And if you know your Old Testament, you know the covenant is maybe one of the most important truths that you find in the Old Testament. Second only to God's own self-revelation. God declaring who he is and then his covenant. I don't know if you can get any more weighty than that. So here, let me read you the first three verses. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level through the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. One of the big indicators of the covenant of God when you see it coming up over and over and over and over and over again and I have a huge list of scriptures here. ...that we're just frankly not going to get to here tonight. One of the things that you want to look for in the Old Testament... ...is when you hear God say, I will be your God and you will be my people. I have come to you and done this for you so that you are mine. You hear? It's him declaring something that they don't deserve. It's a gracious act of declaration from God... ...saying, I am your God, you are my people... And he says this in exclusion to all of the other peoples that exist and that are around. It's elective language. There's no other way to escape it. And we can't tap dance around that. God is determined that he has seen fit to be this group of people's God. And that they would be a particular special object of his affection. And we find it. Let me just give you a list here if you want to look these up. Please do. But Exodus chapter 6, 7, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 26. Let's look at this one, Jeremiah chapter 31. So if you have your Bibles, look at Jeremiah 31 with me real quick. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This same language comes up all throughout the book of Hebrews. And it's an important argument in the book of Hebrews because the Jews are debating about going back to Judaism instead of following Christ. And he has to keep whoever wrote Hebrews has to keep bringing them back to the fact that God made a covenant and if you leave and go back to the old you are leaving the better for the inferior. You're leaving what God has established as the covenant for something that isn't anymore anymore. And so he comes back to that over and over for the church. Now, in Revelation chapter 21, God see God gives John this final vision and he says, I see a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth has passed away and the sea is no more. The holy city, that new Jerusalem, is coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God you hear that covenantal language I will be your God you will be my people this is the thread that runs through the entirety of scripture that Binds all of God's believing people together from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And Christ is that great theme that is that binder in this covenant. And John is the great herald of this covenant coming. That's why John's ministry is so important and it appears in all of the Gospels. It's why when he says, I am one to make straight the way of the Lord, what he's saying is that what he's doing is he's bringing in this covenant that's going to redeem all of God's people. This from the beginning of Scripture to end, John is the herald of this great covenant truth. It's amazing. I was like literally in my chair just worshiping as I was studying this and preparing this this week seeing here what John is doing. Now, to finish up real quick, well they said, "Well, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the prophet, pardon me, the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet?" And John said, "I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you don't know. Even He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to loose. And we will look at that context much more next week when we talk about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But case in point, just four things I want to close with. Number one, why? They ask him, why are you baptizing? Why are you doing this? And here's four things. Number one, the focus of his ministry is the message, not the messenger. The focus of his ministry is the message, not the messenger. So why is he doing what he's doing out in the middle of the wilderness? Because his message is what matters, not he himself. If his, he himself was what's important, you'd go to Jerusalem. You'd go to Rome. You'd go to one of the major cities. And you'd make yourself a big, big shot. But instead, he did the exact opposite. He went out into the middle of the wilderness, which is just like the desert, and started preaching to whoever was out there, and it attracted a crowd because the message was what mattered, not him as the messenger. The the second thing is that the revelation of the covenantal salvation, why is he baptizing? Because he is giving them a new covenantal sign. The Jews had a habit of baptizing if they were going to take a gentile and baptize them into judaism there was other rituals that went along with it baptism was just one small part so they're saying why are you taking this one thing we already do and then doing it to jews he's saying this is an establishment of a new covenantal sign we know from the other passages in the new testament it's no longer circumcision it's going to be the sign of baptism That is actually that covenantal sign that you are united to Christ in his covenant. And then finally, why are you out here doing this? Because of the need of repentance. The need of repentance. The context was jarring. The ministry he was doing was jarring. And the message itself was jarring. And all of that brought people to the understanding that they desperately needed to repent and to turn from their sins. So this character, John the Baptist, that we have here, he's certainly an important figure in redemptive history. We'll find later on that John is called by Jesus the greatest, at that point, person who'd ever been born. It's a pretty pretty powerful commentary on somebody if Jesus himself makes that statement. And he certainly did, but... The importance of John should not be overestimated. He must decrease and Christ must increase. It's what he would have say if he were here today. It's what he did say in the pages of scripture itself. And so while we look to him, we want to look to him, hear what he has to say, and then beyond him to the person who he was called to point people to. We don't want to become some cult of personality where we end up calling our church St. John the Baptist, whatever, nanny kind of stuff. We're Christ's church. We're his covenant people. And we're grateful that John is our brother in that covenant and that what he did in his ministry is point us to our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for giving us this revelation in this man of john the baptist that we have this glorious redemptive truth in the covenants that are swept all throughout your bible we find ourselves having received the benefits of this covenant along with john and we thank you for his ministry of pointing us to this great need that we have of repentance and finding our faith and confidence in your son jesus christ Lord, we thank you for your gospel and all that it means to us. Please grow us and strengthen our faith in your name. Amen.